to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, if you're uncertain where exactly that might be, or look at the first part of your Bible. It's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 4, as we continue in our series, and we'll be looking at chapters 4 through 513. Not going to read the entire uh, passage since there's a lot of there is a lot of repetition here, but we'll uh, we'll read uh, follow along as I read the first twelve verses, and then I'll, I'll lead you through the rest of it. Um, so this this um, these are laws regarding the uh, the sin offering or the purification offering, and you'll see as we go through the text that there's different uh, offerings or uh, um, different rules regulations for different. Uh, parties. So we have first the uh, the high priest, then the whole congregation, then uh, a leader, and then uh, if anyone, a common person sins. So let's give our attention to God's word, Leviticus 4, beginning of verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle parts of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offerings. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Then in verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, and then it gives the rules, and the rules are identical to the rules uh, that we've just read. Uh, If you look at verse 22, when a leader sins, this would be a judge or a a, a tribal leader in the camp, uh, when he does any, uh, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandment of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. And so it's a different animal that's required. Um, and the offering is a little different in that he's doesn't, the blood is not brought into the tabernacle. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's, uh, the blood is splashed up against the altar in the courtyard. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and realizes his, his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female, 
without blemish for the sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of, his blood, of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat shall be, he shall remove as the fat is removed from the priest, peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. And then the next paragraph is if he brings a lamb instead of a goat. If he brings a lamb, and then again the requirement is the same. Let's go now to chapter 5, because in chapter 5 we're told um, some, of the, some of the things that uh, come under the category of unclean sins and, and what is to be done. And so we'll read verse 1 through 13. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify... And though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him. When he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Then in verse 7, if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. Then verse 11, if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offering. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. Let's ask the Lord to bless us this morning. <clears throat> God in heaven, we come to this word that you spoke to Moses so long ago, and yet, Lord, it is a word that you are speaking still to us today, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, uh, that we might delight in your salvation and what you've accomplished for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, boys and girls, I want to imagine if you have been playing out in the yard, uh, maybe right after a rainstorm, boys and girls, and uh, your boots became just caked with mud, maybe nice thick, uh, black, clay-like, you know, just, it's really sticky, ugly stuff. And, and uh, you're done playing, and you came into the house, and you ran into the living room and started jumping up and down on the furniture with those muddy boots. Uh, what would your mom say? Well, she'd probably say some things that shouldn't be said in church, right? I mean, it would be... <clears throat> It would not be a good picture. It would not be a good, uh, a good scene. And the, and the reason is that your, your muddy boots are staining the carpet and, uh, and uh, you're soiling the couch. And there's something special about 
um, your house. It's where you live. It's where you eat and sleep. And, and mud doesn't belong there. Mud spoils it in a sense, right? If you're jumping around on the furniture with your muddy boots, not only are you soiling the, soiling the furniture, but it, it is a deep personal offense to your mom. It is a, a sort of a slap in her face. She works hard to keep the house clean. And when you um, just willfully trample mud all over the house, it's a slap in her face. It's a personal offense, and she will be rightly um, upset. Uh, you will very likely be punished. You're desecrating something she holds in high value. Well, in some ways, that's a picture of how God feels about his house and about his children. You see, the book of Leviticus, as we said, is written um, immediately after uh, Israel has received the law at Mount Sinai. They've just been brought out of Egypt. God has now incorporated them as his own people at Mount Sinai. The temple, the tabernacle has been uh, erected, established, and God is living with Israel in the camp. The tabernacle is dead in the middle of the camp. God is, is in the house, and it's his house. And so to be in the camp of Israel, in a sense, was to be living in God's presence, in God's house. And there are house rules. And Leviticus uh, is, a, is a list of those rules for the priests and for the people. Rules pertaining to holiness and cleanliness. And to ignore those rules is a personal offense. God cares deeply about His house. God cares uh, deeply about cleanliness and holiness he is a holy God and so God gives to his people the Israelites these rules to teach them how to live in his presence in and receive his favor his blessing you see the problem was that uh, Israel was a very very muddy people uh, they came out of Egypt covered in filth spiritual filth the, the, the filth of pagan idolatry and that quickly uh, reveals itself in their, their um, building a golden calf and, and bowing down and worshiping with the golden calf. Uh, they were soiled with, with this abiding refusal to trust in the Lord. And that's revealed in their constant complaining. Moses, have you brought us out of here just to let us die in the desert? Nice work. Better we stayed in Egypt. Well, that's just... A, that's just their sin of refusing to trust in what God had said. These are, this is a people that's stained with perversion, stained with unbelief, stained with idolatry. They are not fit to live in God's presence. But God graciously has claimed them, has graciously come to live with them, and in the book of Leviticus explains how they can live with Him in a way that they will be blessed and they will flourish. And so we have here, um, rules concerning how they can be purged of their sinful stains. Uh, the, the, the rule book uh, begins, in a sense, uh, in chapter 1 with the, the burnt offering, how they can, uh, this is the primary offering as God's people come and they offer a bull and uh, they, uh, it's the primary means where they acknowledge their guilt and are forgiven for their guilt. Uh, R.K. Harrison says the burnt offering was the principal atoning sacrifice it was the sacrifice that reconciled the sinner with his creator. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we had the, the grain offering and the, the peace offering. Um, God's way of teaching his people how to say thank you and how to trust him for future provision. 
Well, this morning we come to the purification offering, and um, I'm not going to just go verse by verse, uh, but, but in a sense, we'll be looking at uh, in broader categories that I think help us understand the point of the text. Let's first just look at the need for this sacrifice. Uh, the, the purification offering is like the burnt offering, but with a different emphasis. Uh, what's being addressed is not simply the guilt of sin, but the pollution of sin. Israel's pollution is real, and it needs to be addressed. They need to be both forgiven and cleansed. It's a biblical emphasis that we could easily overlook. It's, uh, we understand that sin makes us guilty. We've done something wrong. But maybe uh, we forget that sin also defiles us. Sin makes us stained before God, dirty, unclean, unfit. I remember um, years ago now when we, when we had our yellow lab, Buddy, and uh, one day Buddy was out, uh, one night he was out in the backyard, and I hear this, this uh, wail of, uh, of despair from, from Buddy, and he comes flying towards the house just as I opened the door to see what was wrong. Uh, Buddy comes barreling into the house, rubbing his face up against my, my, my legs, and then making a beeline for the couch and just back and forth uh, rubbing his face up against the couch. What happened was Buddy just had his first encounter with a skunk, and it was all over him. And he was taking that, that skunk smell throughout the house. Um, now, we could have just said, well, that's fine, dogs will be dogs, uh, but we didn't say that, right? <laughs> you cannot live, the stench was overwhelming. It was so strong at first, I couldn't identify it as a skunk smell. It was just completely overpowering. Uh, that's Israel coming into the tent of, into the house of God without acknowledging their sin. It, you simply can't, the, the two things cannot uh, coexist. A holy God and people who stink, in a sense, like Israel stinks. It's not possible. And so God uh, gives these, th- this offering to highlight the need for purity, for, for cleanliness, to be for their sin to be washed away. Uh, David gets that, doesn't he, in Psalm 51? We read it earlier in the service. The, the, the psalm is saturated with these pleas for forgiveness, and not, no, not forgiveness, for cleansing. So, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. That's the plea. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, verse 7, and I will be clean. Blot out all my iniquities, verse 9. Create in me a clean heart. David just has the sense that he's, he is covered with a stench, this, the filth and stain of sin. He has murdered his friend, Uriah, a faithful man. He has had uh, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. David did these things. They cling to him. The stench of it clings to him. And he begs that God would make him clean. Because if David is not made clean, David cannot have communion with a holy God. So he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Renew a right spirit within me. Well, the sin offering then is a way for Israel to acknowledge their stain and to be cleansed of them. But there's a unique category here that, uh, that is throughout the text, and that is the category of unintentional sins. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them. Uh, the Bible makes a distinction in the Old Testament between uh, intentional sins, unintentional sins, and what it would call high-handed sins. If you just turn quickly to the book of Numbers, chapter 15, there's a the text that clarifies this. Numbers chapter 15 and verses 29 through 31. So this, uh, this text is also talking about purification offerings. Numbers chapter 15, verse 29. And it reads, You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. I did some looking for uh, how to best understand a high-handed sin. I found this article on the Christian Reformed Church website that I thought was very helpful. It reads like this. In the ancient Near East... One can find pictures of statues, or, uh, statues of, of a god or a warrior with his right fist raised to the sky. This is the picture of a high hand. In Numbers 15, it is used of someone who is literally showing a defiant fist to God as if to say, try and strike me dead, I am doing my own thing. The same sentiment is echoed in Hebrews 10.26, which reads, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment. What we can be sure of is that this sin is not accidental. It is done in a flaunting, defiant, open-eyed, unremorseful manner, which effectively tells Jehovah that he is irrelevant. That's a high-handed sin. It's just a fist in God's face saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, um, do what you want about it. It has no, no, no fear of God, no concern for God, uh, no desire um, in any way to please the Lord. It is a defiant, in-his-face sin. Well, that is, uh, God says, there's no offering for that. There's no purification offering uh, given in the Old Testament for high-handed sin. That person is to be cut off, removed from the camp, kicked out of the house. Well, the purification offering, then, is for someone who sins unintentionally, inadvertently. Now, we, we quickly think that this means purely uh, something that you simply didn't know about, and it does involve that, but it, it, it's not simply that. And we know that from the first instance in chapter 5, uh, when someone is, uh, fails to provide testimony when they're called upon to do so. Well, they know they've been, they've been called upon to testify, and they know that they're, they're not going to testify. But it, this seems to be, uh, the, unintentional, the category of unintentional sins seems to them to be lapses that are due to ignorance, you just didn't know, um, or uh, human weakness, you were afraid of testifying for one reason or other, or simply because you live in a sin-stained world. You touched something unclean, you didn't know it was unclean. And that's been revealed to you. 
And so the examples are of that nature. You, you touch an unclean thing, whether it be an unclean animal or human uncleanness, or you uttered a rash oath. Uh, this was often related to drinking too much alcohol, and people would uh, utter these oaths rashly, whether to do good or to evil, to do evil, but it's a sin to do that. And, and later someone would say, do you realize what you said? And would reveal to them the rashness of their oath. So, so these are things that are, that are done sort of out of human weakness, often um, Due to just ignorance, you, you weren't aware of it. This wasn't a blatant, flagrant violation and, and they forget God. It's not that kind of activity. And so you find reoccurring throughout the text. He did this thing, it's a com- it violates a commandment that God gave, but it was hidden from him. You find that throughout the text. It was hidden from him. He didn't, he didn't realize it. But then later it's made known to him. And he realizes his guilt. And so... Th- uh, the guilt is still there. It's objectively real. And, that, and that's a, maybe a new category for many of us uh, because we tend to think that uh, if we sin inadvertently, we're not really sinning, right? If it's unintentional, it's not really sin. Uh, moms, maybe you've uh, been uh, doing something in the house and suddenly you hear a scream from the playroom and you go in there and you find out that child A has, has whacked child B over the head with a toy and child A looks up at you with some fear and trepidation and says, it was an accident, right? I accidentally took this truck and whacked my sister over the head with it. Now why do they say that? Because they think that if it's an accident... They're not guilty. If it was an accident, then they won't be punished. Well, big people do this all the time. Uh, we say things like, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. Didn't mean to offend you. In other words, sorry you're so thin-skinned. But we say things like that as though our lack of intention, maybe we mean it sincerely. Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to make you cry. We, th- we think that our lack of intention excuses the behavior. It was unintentional. Uh, I'm, maybe you've tried this. Um, I remember one time being pulled over by a police officer somewhere south of, of Wayland. Wayland is nasty. They get, it, you got to go like 25 miles an hour. And, but I thought we were out of town. So, um, so I get pulled over. And, and I, I truly thought we were out of town. So the police officer walks up and I said, and he said, Did you, you know, you know what the speed limit is here? And I said, well, I thought it was this, and no, it's this. I said, officer, I'm sorry. I did, I did not know. With the idea that, I mean, you, you cannot really write me a ticket if I, I didn't know. I mean, seriously, I didn't know. And uh, so he wrote me a ticket. <laughs> and the reason, you see, there's nothing in Michigan uh, traffic code that says these rules apply only for those who are aware of them. They apply whether you're aware of them or not. Uh, You're guilty whether you're aware of it or not. And that's exactly how it is with with God's law. Unintentional sins are called sin in the Bible. And unintentional guilt is called guilt in the Bible. It is a violation of God's holy law. There is a moral stain. You get a sense then of how holy God is and how serious He is about holiness. He does not say, if if you didn't mean it, don't worry about it. He doesn't say that at all. He says, if you didn't mean it, you're guilty, 
And that guilt has to be addressed or you cannot live in my presence. Well, God has given a way for the people to deal with the guilt, the objective guilt of unintentional sin. Now, as, uh, as you saw as we read through the text, the rules are much more specific uh, because they take into account the varying degrees of moral stain. Not all sins are the same in severity. So, uh, as we said, they don't, all sin doesn't come from the same inner motive. Some sins are out of ignorance or weakness. Some sins are high-handed rebellion, defiance in God's face. But, but we also see in this text that they don't, uh, sins are different in severity because not all sins have the same impact on the community. Sins of leaders are more serious since they have the greater ability to cause harm in the community. And so as we read through the, chapter 4, you'll find this descending order of severity. First high priest, then the whole congregation, then an individual leader, verse 23 through 26, and then the common person, 27 through 35. And the rules, as we saw, are a little bit different in each case. If you're a high priest, uh, you, you're required to sacrifice a male bull without blemish. Same if the whole congregation sins. If you're a ruler, a leader of, uh, of some sort, tribal leader, then you're required to offer a male goat without blemish. If you're a common person, then it's a female goat or a female lamb. Unless you are poor, then you could offer turtle doves. Uh, unless you're destitute, and then you could offer a tenth of an ephah or flour, about two liters of flour. And so the rules vary according to the severity of the sin. There are several distinctions I'd like to point out uh, re regarding the high priest, and we'll go through these quickly. But the high priest, notice in verse 3, his sin brings guilt on the people. The high priest stands in a unique position as not just a religious leader, but he represents the, uh, the community as a whole. He, is, he stands for the nation. So Wenham, in his commentary, says the high priest is the representative of the nation and its ideal. So long as he is pure and spotless, all Israel fulfilled its obligation through its representative. When, however, the high priest is tainted through sin and becomes unworthy of representing the nation, all Israel stands guilty before the Lord. That's the significance of the high priest. Now, there's not a direct correlation uh, between the high priest of the Old Testament and the pastor of the New Testament. The correlation is the high priest, uh, the, the, the sinful high priest of the Old Testament and the perfect high priest of the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, but there is a principle here that the New Testament authors are not afraid to apply. So James 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Well, because if we, uh, if we uh, sin, either in our teaching or life, um, there's a po potential to cause great harm in the community. It's a very sobering truth for those who are in leadership. Well, the, so the high priest sin defiles the people, but it also defiles the tabernacle. And so with the high priest sins, the blood of the, of the uh, bull is not just um, sprinkled on the altar in the courtyard, but it's brought into the tabernacle itself, into the holy place. And the, the altar that is there, the, the, the blood must be smeared on the horns of that altar to purify the tabernacle. 
He's, he's done something that is very, very serious in, in God's holy place. Sin has been introduced and it needs, to be, it needs to be purified. And the third thing we see is that the bull cannot be eaten. A God does not want the, the high priest benefiting from his own sin. And so the, the, the carcass is taken outside of the camp and it's burned there. Well, that's the rules for the high priest. Uh, the congregation, the rules are very, very similar. We're not sure if um, Moses is speaking about the whole congregation head for head or if he's speaking about uh, sort of a parliamentary body representing the congregation. Either way, there are times when the whole congregation is guilty of unintentional sin and the sacrifice then is identical because they're all guilty. It's identical to the sacrifice for the high priest. If a ruler or tribal leader sins, well then... um, He's also is guilt, guilty, um, and uh, he is uh, required to bring a goat, a male goat, without blemish. And that blood is just smeared on the altar in the courtyard. And again, the same for the common people. They're allowed to bring a female goat or, or a female lamb or two turtle doves or some flour. Now, every, after every one of the um, specifications for whatever category uh, God is addressing, it ends with the same wonderful assurance. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Uh, God wants Israel to know that when they come confessing their sin, and they uh, go through the the ritual that God has given to them, in a sense, to to clean themselves, they're actually in the sight of God clean. Uh, that, that offering, that sacrifice is seen by God. The blood of it, in a sense, washes away the stain. And they're free to come into the living room. They're free to jump onto the couch, right? And, and enjoy the love and grace and favor of their Heavenly Father. They're invited in. God has made a way for Israel to be cleansed from their sin. That is the, the primary um, Truth and application of this for the Old Testament Israel, well, what does it mean for us as New Testament Christians? Well, um, just two things to point out this morning. The first and most important is that Christ is our purification offering. So what is foreshadowed in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament in our Lord Jesus. Jesus came to die for our sin. Jesus came to die for our sin. That's the message of the New Testament. And His death does not only accomplish forgiveness, it accomplishes cleansing. I think too often we assume that Jesus died to forgive us, and now it's up to us to clean up our act. Well, the the gospel truth is that Jesus cleaned up our act when he shed his blood for us. Right? He accomplished all of our salvation. So in Hebrews 9, it talks about Christ entering in, not into the tabernacle made by hands, and not with the blood of bulls or goats, but Jesus entering into the tabernacle of heaven itself, and with his own blood, and and the writer says, if, if the Old Testament sacrifice was able to cleanse the flesh, how much more now the blood of Jesus Christ offered up by our great high priest in the tabernacle of heaven is able to, cl- to purify, cleanse our conscience. Do you have a clean conscience? A clean conscience, you see, is a conscience that is able to recognize the truth of your sin and yet before God know 
It's been washed away. There's no stain left. There's no pollution left. It's gone. You can, you can stand before God without any fear of judgment be, be, because you sense that you're, you're, you're not worthy or you're unfit. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed you clean. In Revelation chapter 7, John is talking uh, with one of the elders who he sees in this vision. And the elders said to John, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They did not clean up their act. They came to Jesus, and Jesus washed them clean in His blood. The old song, uh, the, the, the uh, gospel song, what, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious. Precious is the flow that, that, that makes me white as snow. No greater fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But we've got to answer one more thing here, and that is what about intentional sins? Uh, if the purification offering was for unintentional sin, and that points to Jesus, what about unintentional? I mean, intentional. Have you ever sinned intentionally? Knowingly? Willingly, even defiantly doing what you knew God said don't do? Yeah, you have. You certainly have. I have. King David did. And it's interesting, when Nathan comes to rebuke King David for his sin, he uses the language of high-handed sins. So he says to David, why did you despise the word of the Lord? That's exactly the definition of high-handed sin in Numbers 15. It is despising the word of the Lord. Why did you do what is evil in his sight? That's, that's the language of Numbers 15. David is being charged rightfully with high-handed sin, David decided at that moment that God was not worth obeying, not worth pursuing. Uh, God could do whatever he wanted. David was certainly going to do what he wanted. So why was David forgiven? And the answer is because David confessed his sin and cast himself on the mercy of God. And that's what we can do. You see, the gospel is for great sinners. Jesus came and, and he forgave tax collectors and prostitutes, and told the story of the prodigal son. The gospel is for, for those who uh, have sinned grievously and greatly with rebellion and defiance against God, and yet God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our purification. And that the gospel promises that if we come confessing our sin and casting ourselves upon Christ Jesus, our sin will be washed away. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, it's critical to confess them, to acknowledge them, to name them as sins before the Lord, to confess them particularly before the Lord. This is what I've done. This is what I've thought. This is what I said. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the gospel promise. 
to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I think it's far too easy for God's people to, uh, to live unsure, uncertain of God's favor. Friends, God has given you Jesus Christ so that with a promise, if you confess your sin, he will cleanse you by the power of his blood. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe, maybe you've been just living your life and going your way and you've never really stopped to think about the pollution of your sin and what that deserves before the throne of God's judgment. Well, this morning, friends, God calls you to come and confess your sin. Remember what Ananias, the old, uh, this old priest, says to Saul, uh, who uh, has just been converted, this man who was murdering Christians, thinking he was doing the will of God. Ananias goes to Saul... And he says to him, Acts twenty two sixteen, 16, Why wait? Be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on his name. And friends, that's the same for you. If you've never done that, why wait? Why wait? Wash away your sin, calling upon his name. Friends, that's the gospel God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's believe it. Amen. God in heaven, I thank you that our sin, no matter how sordid and ugly and perverse it might be, and Father, it is truly far more sordid and perverse than we know, but our sins are washed away in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The stain is gone. We thank you, O oh God, so much, for we are great sinners who have sinned both unintentionally and intentionally. And yet, Father, I thank you that in Jesus Christ, the gospel is revealed to us, a gospel that is sufficient for the greatest of sinners if we confess our sin and call upon your name. Father, I pray then that we would be a confessing people, that we would readily acknowledge our sin, our guilt, uh, that we would confess our shame, and Lord, that we would then also be a believing people that we would trust your promise, your word of, of assurance to us that in Jesus Christ we, have, we are washed clean and we are fit in Jesus Christ to live within your house in this life and most importantly in the life to come. That we are included in the number of the saints, those who've been, had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And that we are free to walk into the new heaven and the new earth, though we are great sinners because we are robed in the righteousness of our great Savior. Oh, Father, I pray that we would live our life day to day in the joy of that gospel, in the joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.